Are you ready for operational excellence? Welcome to the Visual Workplace, Work That Makes Sense, where your host and visual workplace expert, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, shares powerful visual principles and practices to optimize your operations and make them safer, faster, better, and far less costly. The Visual Workplace. You can't get to excellence without it. Now, here's Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth. Welcome. Welcome to Visual Workplace Radio, where we learn about the power, principles, and practices of sharing information visually. Hi, my name is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm your host on this, our weekly radio show, where we talk about and celebrate workplace visuality, letting the workplace speak. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you. And in each of our shows, we look at some aspect of that, of how visuality allows us to embed the intelligence of our operational system into the landscape, the living landscape of work through visual devices and visual systems. This is our intelligence, your intelligence, my intelligence. We install the details of our current level of enterprise excellence even if we are not quite as excellent as we wish we would be or as we know we will be, we install those details through visual devices and visual systems into the production, the operational landscape. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. Whether it's in a factory or a healthcare facility or an office or an open pit mind, it's information, it's meaning, and we turn it into language. And why do we do that? For three good reasons. <laughs> the first one is because we get stunning bottom line improvement results, improvements in safety, quality, cost, delivery, productivity on time, on timeliness, all of it. And secondly, we do it for the splendid cultural alignment, a spirited and engaged workforce on all levels. And the third reason is we do it to enjoy ourselves at work so that we flow. The struggle is gone. The struggle evaporates and we can simply do our work. And the enterprise benefits and we benefit. That's pretty good, isn't it? That's why we do workplace visuality. So today we're going to focus on some implementation issues. I finished the 10-doorway model, and now I'm kind of moving into a number of different directions. Last week, we did the Visual Lean Alliance, and this week, we're going to talk about what I call the five factors. Uh, The subtitle is, It's the Start That Stops Us, the Five Factors. So let me begin like this, but uh, let me also first encourage you to continue to be in touch with us at radio at visualworkplace.com, or you can get in touch with us at our website, visualworkplace.com. There's lots of opportunity to send uh, your comments and your questions and your stories through uh, many of the links there. Please take advantage. Become part of the conversation. Send your photos. We're really interested in those. Radio at visualworkplace.com and or visualworkplace.com, the website. So I wanted to um, talk about implementation issues because of some of the emails that we're getting from you about the how. You're understanding the what, you choose the what, you choose visuality, you choose lean, you choose perhaps a methodology like Six Sigma to help you with your problem solving. And you've got the what, and you're asking about the how. And I think there's a great deal to say about that. Um, One of the pieces that I uh, have found to be very, very interesting is the way to implement effectively So I want to begin this discussion with a story. It's a story, could be about you, could be about somebody not exactly like you, but someone you know, a fellow employee, a CI specialist, a continuous improvement specialist, a trainer. But this is a story about a company that has a number of sites, and the person who is in charge, whom I happen to know, is in charge of a conversion to operator-led visuality. If you remember the model, that's doorway number one. He's responsible for three sites. These three sites are part of the pilot. 
they want to test the viability of operator-led visuality because they have another 40 plants. The industry, interestingly, is one of the toughest anywhere. It's textiles. The business is built around volume. And there are a lot of traditional habits that kind of get in the way of the idea of improvement. So because they're focused on volume in this industry, this tough industry of textiles, there are issues. And as I talk about this, I want to encourage you to listen to what I'm sharing in the context of your own work. You may work at a healthcare center, a hospital. You may work at an office, an agency, a military depot. Listen to it, and as you listen, don't say, oh, no, that's not about me. It's about manufacturing, or it's about automotive, or it's about, in this case, textiles. It's not about me. Just flip that and say, this is about me. What can I derive from what I'm hearing that will help me in my industry, in my business? Because the issue or the condition of implementation is really a universal challenge, and it has a universal profile. Okay. So in this particular industry, margins are very, very thin. People empowerment, well, the industry is not famous for that. It's not famous for continuous improvement. It's not famous for people empowerment. It's not famous for wide margins. As I say, they're very, very narrow. But the company in this story is different. This company already recognizes the importance and the benefits of improvement and also of people. And so it decided to make a sizable investment to become, as it were, a pioneer in its industry and to create a transformation on the operator level. It wants to test out if it can be done, and if it can be done, it wants to replicate So I want to, in particular, talk about my main contact there. His name, let's say, is Chris. He's the director of continuous improvement, and he is the go-to person on workplace visuality. Chris and I, we're in touch. We've been in touch every other week, either to discuss or sort through the logistics of getting visuality rolling or deepening, to talk about the training schedule, to talk about the trainers or maintenance what's happening, what's not happening, in short, how things are are going. On alternate weeks, I will often have a session online or on the phone with trainers, with trainers themselves, with site coordinators across these three sites. And I want to tell you that I have found it to be very productive to combine on-site visits with long-distance coaching, what I call at-a-distance coaching, which means we do it on the phone. Because in When you coach long distance, the other end of the party, your clients, these sites that are under conversion, they need to prepare, they need to be coherent, they need to come up with an agenda. That means they need to know what their questions are. And when you know what your questions are, you're already way, way ahead of having problems. You understand the nature of the problem. You're putting it in context. You're putting it into words. It becomes an agenda item. So it's very effective, I have found, to start building the leadership mind and to get a great deal of uh, accomplished during these online or phone sessions. The rollout, in fact, got off to a good start. The trainers and the site coordinators were eager. They were ready to learn the methodology. They had been given an overview, and they they knew what it what the change was supposed to look like when it ended. Management was also excited and also very expectant. There were, however, or also some large organizational changes that were happening on the corporate level just by chance. And so there was some rock and roll locally, but much less locally than corporately. But still, local changes always require careful adjustments because transformation live transformations, I beg your pardon, transformations live and breathe locally. They're all on a local level. They're all really on a personal level. So Chris and I met, and I was impressed by his strength, 
He was very smooth personally. He was savvy. He was ready to lead. He wanted to learn how to lead. He wanted to use the methodology as a platform for leadership. He was people-minded. He was really doing a fine job. And I knew what he faced. I knew that however well-prepared he was, he would still be facing the unknown, the unknown that is always part of an implementation. But there was also the additional unknown because he happened to have come late. He was not part of the planning and plotting. He was brought in just before the launch, and in a way he had to catch up. And he was doing a really good job. I could not have wanted or asked for a better partner. But I also knew that he knew a lot was riding on his ability to catch up and take over and take on. So anyway, Chris called on this particular morning, not too long ago, and he wanted to talk. I could tell something was bothering him, something different, something, as it were, that was important to him. And he took the lead. And he began to ask this kind of series of questions. Hey, Gwendolyn, you know... uh, can you tell me, please, what I, what I can expect? Can you kind of give me a map out of what's supposed to happen? And then when that happens, what happens next? And after that? <laughs> and we went back and forth. And I told him one or two or 20 things about what was next and what to expect in terms of steps, in terms of methodology, but I knew there was something else underneath. And I said, hey, Chris, is there something else? It sounds like there's something underneath what we're discussing now that is either troubling you or you want me to respond to. What is it? Please tell me. And he said, yes, there is. I not only want to know what to expect, I want to know how we're doing. How are things going? Are we doing okay? Are we ahead? Are we behind? I just don't know. I mean, things seem so slow. We keep running into roadblocks. Our trainers are struggling. We have been having a hard time dealing with all the ideas that are coming from the operators. Are we handling them right? Are we doing okay? Are we doing okay? And I told him what I knew. And I said, Chris, you are doing very okay. You are exactly where you ought to be for the challenge that you've taken on. We talked some more. And I realized that the main job of this phone call was to put Chris at his ease. He needed his strength and his confidence in the face of the unknown to make sure that he noticed the gains that he had made They needed to be pointed out to him. These gains were hard won, but won nevertheless, and gains nevertheless. And there were breakthroughs. There were several. And as I mapped them out, I heard him, as it were, breathe a sigh of relief, deep relief. Everything was as it should be. He had not missed the mark. He had not failed. No one had failed. They were all on their way. And that was nice. And it was also true. Efforts were paying off. And here's the thing. These efforts were paying off in a way that an outsider might not notice. Not even in a way that some of the leaders at corporate might notice. The changes were subtle, but they were still there. And as we continued to talk, I kind of moved the discussion into the area of our discussion today, and that is to help Chris realize that people were learning. They were learning, and there was so much to learn. For this industry and for this corporation, the approach of operator-led visuality was new in so many ways. They not only needed to learn about a new set of outcomes, the what, but they needed to learn how to train for those outcomes. They needed to learn the how and to validate a a how that was somewhat new. 
in fact, very new. The how is called I-driven. To begin to understand that the change is really a change that is owned by the very people who are changing. That the operators are becoming empowered to look at themselves and look at their outcomes and learn the way, map the way for themselves. So then what is the role of the trainer? It isn't just to instruct and to tell and to push and to expect things to happen and to follow up and hold people accountable. You can't build ownership like that. People will still be accountable, but they'll be accountable to their own goals and to their own outcomes. So the trainers, the site trainers and the site coordinators who are beginning to live in real time the challenges that we've talked about, you and me, about putting the infrastructure together. And they were gaining. They were actually building an infrastructure. But as you know, you build an infrastructure within an existing structure and there's always friction. There's always adjustments. And that's puzzling as you go through that transition because you wonder whether who's going to win, you know, who's going to adjust to whom. Is the new going to adjust to the old or is the old going to give way to the new? So this kind of insecurity is very, very much part of the change and you need strength in order to deal with the fact that you don't know exactly what's happening next. So what helps you? What helps you is you follow the methodology. You may worry, but you may worry about everything that's going wrong, the small bumps. You may worry about failing. So we had to have this talk. And, you know, I I know some of you are thinking, well, you know what? That sounds all well and good to not worry about failing to kind of go with the flow and go with the bumps and learn. But I've got a boss who is not that forgiving, who wants to see success and wants to see it soon. In a sense, if I start failing, you may be saying to yourself, my boss is going to think the whole thing is failing. He's going to see everything through a lens of failure. This is called, of course, rehearsing trouble. And when you rehearse trouble, when you worry in this particular way, it comes. So, what to do? We had this nice talk, Chris and I, and I was there to bolster his confidence and to give him my perspective on how he was succeeding, on how he was doing everything exactly right, even though the outcomes were still blurry. I was encouraging him to continue, to continue what he was already continuing. And that was important. And then I told him what I want to tell you now. You may be doing exactly what you're supposed to be doing, and you may be doing it well, But that doesn't mean your implementation is not in jeopardy. Because it is. Because an implementation, a conversion, a rollout is always in jeopardy at the start. Because it is the start that stops us. It is the start that stops us. That is when people bail. That is when they give up at the start. That is when you, your boss, them, are likely to see a problem when there is really only a process that is grabbing, that is beginning to take hold and encountering some bumps. It is the start that stops us. It is the start in our misgivings about the methodology that we chose, about our execution of a methodology. We may have serious problems or worries about our boss 
or the culture may be biting us. And all of that is all right. An implementation is always in jeopardy until it grabs. And by grabs, I mean until it begins to sink roots or even to sink deep roots. Even then, some joker on the side or corporate level may misread the signs and get impatient and pull the plug, and it's always unfortunate. Or you, because you're meeting with some success, may in the middle of an implementation get get promoted. And your belief and passion and skill, what you brought, will go with you. And then everything will go down the tubes. Implementations are hard. You need to pay attention. Implementations are hard until you and your company get good at it, get very good at it, get very good at implementing, and then things will get easier, much easier. You will have had lots of practice at learning and at failing, at seeing problems and making adjustments and understanding when to give, when to get, when to stop, when to hold them, when to fold them. You know how that goes. The fact is that if you continue, you will almost always get the payoff and you will get good at it. Toyota got good at this. Parker Hannafin got good at it. At least at the plant that I know in Irvine, California, they were ace implementers, incredible implementers. They knew what to do. They knew where their strength was. They were inspirational, and they were very, very practical. Hmm? They got good at continuing what they were doing as long as they could. And they got, they got very good at keeping an attitude of learning. They showed up. They told the truth. They stayed open. This, by the way, are the, is the set of three instructions that Buddha uh, the, the Buddha gave. He said, this is your job in life. Show up, tell the truth, and stay open. <laughs> very, I like that very, very much. It's so simple. So you get practiced at this, and the worry begins to recede. That's how the sense of satisfaction and stability begins to take root. But it happens over the bump. Up until then, your initiative your implementation will always be in some matter, manner of jeopardy, real jeopardy, threat, risk. You have to stay vigilant. You have to notice. You have to move forward, take a risk, and learn. You may learn about success. You may learn about failure. It takes a lot of energy. This is the glory in it. I have heard it said that ice which melts at anything over 32 degrees, requires 80% of the energy to move from 31 to 32 degrees. It requires 80% of the energy for melting, moving through that last set of degrees, from 31 to 32 degrees, as it did to move from zero to 31 degrees. 80% of the energy is in the last degree. It takes a lot of energy. It's the start that stops us. It takes 80% of the fuel in a rocket ship just to break the pull of gravity. The rest of the fuel is for the voyage itself, the journey to the destination. But it's the start that consumes us. It takes focus. It takes energy. It takes will and courage to keep going. I am so impressed by companies that have taken up the challenge of change. Sometimes it's called TQM, Total Quality Management, or Lean, or Operational Excellence. I happen to favor operational excellence as a, as a um, descriptor because it's operational and it's excellence, and I think that's a very balanced view. Many, many companies have... Uh, engaged in continuous improvement and they all recognize that it's a long journey so anyway I told Chris I said you're doing okay you're exactly where you ought to be for the challenge you've taken on 
and your implementation is going to be in jeopardy for some time. So pay attention because it's the start that stops us. So I kind of want to walk you through a list of the five factors that I've discovered that make a difference that you pay attention to when you're implementing. And here's the list to begin with, and then I'll pursue them in some discussion. The first factor is the mistaken pursuit of perfection, and I'll develop that in a moment. The second factor that will stop us and defeat us, in my experience, is if we demand concrete results too quickly. The third factor is really, really at the beginning, and that is we often are far too casual about choosing the methodology itself, the change methodology. And sometimes it lacks a robust implementation protocol. I'll talk about that as well. But, But we're talking about the what and the how. The fourth is trainers begin to train groups for the wrong reasons. I'll develop that a little bit too. And the fifth is implementers, sometimes trainers, decide to reshape the methodology long before they have learned it. So they begin to cherry pick the methodology. Let me go into each of those. The mistaken pursuit of perfection. Well, you already know how I feel about it. I think it's a mistake to pretend to pursue perfection. Perfection is an idea that is often promoted in the world of operational excellence nowadays. And I've, I've heard good raps on it. I've heard kind of good um, lectures on the importance of seeking a goal that you never reach. But I find it to be a difficult concept to work in the West. It works pretty well in the East. But I find it to be difficult for us in North America and in Europe, South America. And why is that? Well, my friends, (laughs) because the U.S. and our Western allies are largely lands of dualistic thinking to begin with. We already like opposites. We promote a polarized thinking. We see that everywhere. You can see the evidence of the duality in our thinking, in our politics, in our religions, our ideas of beauty, our ideas of age and youth. There's a good, there's a bad. There's a demand to be perfect. Except perfection is actually an interpretation and creates a particular kind of tyranny in a person who seeks it and in a person who does not meet the mark, does not meet that perfection. Because for us in the West, the opposite of perfect is imperfect. And for us, that spells out failure. Now, we can say that the East are much better at this. The East understand process. They don't seek perfection in this lifetime, (laughs) but they move towards it. They move towards it in their art, I remember a bowl maker in Japan. He made a bowl that sold for $3,000. It was a a ceramic bowl, but his process was so valued that the bowl itself became valuable. His artistry, his precision, his mastery of the form, and all of his bowls were imperfect. And yet he was esteemed as a perfect master. And it seems that Eastern thought can hold that those dichotomies. But we're not so good at that. The opposite of perfect is imperfect, and that spells failure. And we are in the tyranny of perfection, and it builds a fence inside of us, between us and between us and others. I, I don't like it. When we bring it into the world of continuous improvement, then we're pretty much at loggerheads. We really have to stand on our head, try to figure out how to explain that. There is, I believe it creates a deep contradiction. Now, you may be successful at it. I have never been. I 
prefer the notion of progress, modest but moving forward. And we notice. We notice not how far we are from the destination, but how far we have moved from the past. Progress. That's the point of comparison that I find to be very interesting. And when we move forward even a little, as the great ancient poet Kaiku said, he happened to have been an Eastern philosopher, the galaxies move. When we move forward even a little, it's hard. Perfection can rob us of the results of our good efforts, progress. So I am for giving ourselves a break and recognizing that while effort is not exactly a result, it is only through effort and renewed effort and continuing effort that we can proceed on the journey long enough to create new outcomes. So right at the beginning, I like to set aside the idea of perfect. I certainly have to set it aside in, my, in myself. I have proven again and again I am an imperfect person. It almost always surprises me. I have discovered yet new ways <laughs> that, I, that I'm imperfect. And, you know, out of my own self-protection, I have to avoid the idea of perfect because I am such an imperfect um, exemplar. You know, I'm, I'm full of flaws and unexpected and, and not very welcomed surprises. If I'm that way and I'm a teacher and I'm a coach and I'm perhaps, you might say, a thought leader in my field, then I better be careful not to promote it because I can't live up to it myself. In fact, it's quite discouraging for me. So that's the first thing. I'm saying to you, step aside from this idea of perfection and recognize effort. You're going to get the results. Just don't expect them at the start. People are learning. They're changing. They are resisting. They are pushing back. They don't trust you yet, however trustworthy you may be. You haven't earned it. They haven't learned it. I love one day, <laughs> this may have happened to you. <laughs> one day a manager came up to me and said, you know, Gwendolyn, I, I like change. I just don't like when someone's trying to change me. <laughs> and I said, I thought to myself, bingo. <laughs> I like change. Just don't try to change me, please. <laughs> Let me enjoy the change and myself at the same time, (laughs) stuck as I may be. So that's number one, the pursuit of perfection. Be careful. The language sounds high-minded and maybe even high-minded to you, but it is full of traps. And if you are in a leadership position, that trap may in fact defeat you uh, much sooner than you should be defeated in your vision of a changed future. Second, this is kind of a little bit associated. We demand results too quickly. Sometimes it's us, sometimes it's our boss demanding results. And we don't allow the organization time to learn. This is a theme that I'm drawing from the first, my first factor, the perfection factor. Not only to learn, but to integrate and absorb those learnings. When we do this, we rob the organization of the time it needs and the resolve it needs to learn how to deal with the new way. It's time for mistakes. People need to have time to make a mistake. I have just a a recent example of this where we're teaching Hoshin. I'm teaching Hoshin to a senior manager and The first is to create a temple or a house and to really make it your own, this individual manager. And he's done a good job at that. And in a recent conversation, when we were talking about uh, cascading it, as Hoshins must, they must be cascaded up and then down again, down and then up again. He said, what happens if it changes? What happens if my site managers begin to change my Hoshin, then I lose my vision. And, you know, I I talked to him about it. I said, you know, first of all, the job of 
managers is to implement, understand, and then implement the corporate intent. Their job isn't to change it. Their job is to understand yours. But the thing that he really needed to understand is to not expect them to understand it right away, to give them time to get into the mindset mindset that would allow them to understand the Hoshin of the senior manager. In this case, he was a general manager of four plants, complex plants on top of that. He was afraid, and he was going to use that fear to make them stop thinking. And so we had a conversation, and I think I was pretty persuasive about let them go. They won't make the kind of mistake that's going to destroy anything. They'll just make the kinds of mistakes that will need an adjustment. But if we rob them of that, if we preempt their learning as they dig into your operation systems improvement template, which is what we call the temple or the house in our Hoshin, they will stop learning. They will instead attempt to anticipate what you want, and that will be dangerous for the outcome. They won't be able to support the vision you have unless they can understand it in their own words. And as we know, people enroll in someone else's vision because it's close enough to their own vision for them to say, you're like me. You're close enough to what I want for me to say, okay, I'll support what you want. So, trainers, here's another example. Trainers have a lot to learn before they get good at their job, and they need their own time to make mistakes. We call it, in my methodology, the A cycle. The whole first cycle of training is for the trainer, for the trainer to learn about the methodology, learn how to teach it, learn how to implement it, learn how to coach it, and the first set of operators, if we're doing operator-led visuality, are often the casualties of the trainer's learning because the trainer is going to make mistakes with those operators, step on toes. But there's no way that the trainer can take a leadership role unless they make those mistakes during this first cycle. It's like having your first kid. You have your first kid, you do the best you can, but you make a lot of mistakes, and the kid needs therapy by the time he's 13. He's your A cycle. You get a second kid, you do better. You learned on the first. You still love him, but he needs a little repair. (laughs) You know, it's just the way it goes. You learn, and that's through mistakes. So expecting results too soon will ultimately demonstrate a lack of understanding of how change happens and how it lasts, how to make it sustainable. That's big discussion item. We have to make it sustainable. We have to find a way to make it stick. Well, to make what stick? You cannot have sustainability if you have not taught something worth sustaining. So you better learn how to teach it so it's worth it. Okay, so people have to understand. And if your trainers don't understand, no one will because, you know what, they're the front end. So slow down there and build the front end. Take the pressure off. A good methodology, which I'll get to in a moment about choosing methodologies, will provide guiding principles for both the content, the knowledge, and the know-how, the process of how to implement the content. Okay, so let's talk about a good methodology. I've always said that bringing in, this is factor three now, bringing in a new methodology is a decision that needs to be made on an executive level. This is the first line of protection or strength that needs to be in place so you can then proceed from strength to strength. Select your methodologies carefully, invest wisely, So a CEO, a president, a GM will gather recommendations on a methodology which are the right ones, which are the candidates. But the final decision has to be the CEO's, the president's, the ranking site executive, the executive, the ranking executive. It's that important. In the 1990s, way, 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 way back when, 
a lot of decisions were made, may I say, on the golf course. A lot of them. A CEO of a big manufacturing company would be playing golf with a slick consultant and the deal would be struck. And the consultant and the CEO would finish the game happy, but the consequences were disastrous. So choosing a methodology is an important, a seminal, foundational decision. Okay? Don't fail because the methodology is the wrong one or a bad one. So that is number three. Choose your methodologies widely. You will be stopped at the start if it isn't a good fit. And, you know, you got to do this for your own company. Comparisons are inevitable. Company comparing it with another company. The company compares itself to other companies that have succeeded at the same process and questions are raised Well, why did we fail if they succeeded? What's wrong with us? What did we do wrong? Other companies have succeeded at at this process, this methodology, and then heads, heads begin to roll. But the deeper damage surfaces when the company tried it again and failed again, and usually for the same reasons. And the workforce looks at that and they say, oh, look at that. It's the flavor of the month syndrome. But no, it isn't. Most of the times it isn't. No organization is interested in the flavor of the month. They want a return on their investment. They count on it. They want the results. Remarkable ones. (laughs) But most of the time when an organization fails, They don't realize that it was because they selected a methodology that did not have an embedded process for implementing. They assumed it did. They'll do something casual. They'll bring in a methodology. I don't want to name them because I'll get myself in trouble and, and you'll probably think I'm wrong. But when you choose a methodology... It has to have a clear what, but also a very clear how. How do you implement it? It's heartbreaking to see a company lose confidence in itself because it it failed. So the thing that can cause us to stop is when the methodology doesn't have any feet, when it has a head, a pretty good head, it makes sense, but it needs hands and feet and heart for an implementation to produce results. So vet your methodologies. If you've built a success record in effectively implementing, you are not likely to have to struggle about this because you know what that methodology looks like if you already have a proven track record. You're a hot commodity, sought after. If you're the head of it, sought after by Headhunters, you've been successful. Because once a company has someone on the inside who knows how to crack the code on effective implementations, let me try that again again, implementations, you are pretty sure that he or she will be able to teach others. The success creates success, success the company can build on. You can be sure of that. So let's move on to number four. And I just want to say with these methodologies, these methodologies are not vanilla. They are Cherry Garcia, uh, what was it called? Coffee Heath Bar Crunch. They've got flavor. They've got chunkiness. They've got substance. They've got personality. Hmm? They are not vanilla. Let's move on to number four. Trainers begin to train too soon before they understand the content well enough to be able to teach it well enough. So this is similar to what I was saying before, but slightly different. Similar to, but slightly different. Hmm. Importantly different. Trainers need to be trained. 
do not send your trainers out with minimal training and say, follow the songbook. (laughs) They have to do more than walk through the material in an uninspired way and present it half-heartedly, incompletely, and with no juice. They have to. Because remember, our, our premise is that the content, the what, is good. We've chosen a good methodology. It has a good process of implementation. Now your trainers have to train it. They need time to learn. Expecting results too quickly from your trainers will really prevent them from learning. They are. All trainers are so sincere and hardworking and hopeful, but they're also nervous when they're learning something for the first time or learning a new way. They worry about keeping their jobs, but they also worry about not doing a good job for you. So that's the A cycle I was talking about. Really help your trainers. Help your trainers have time to train. All right. Let's move on to number five. And that's about when a company decides to adjust or change a methodology before it understands how it works. This is called cherry picking. They cherry pick what they understand and they remove what is new or suspect. So this is, again, the choice of your methodologies. You know, I've been doing methodology for decades and I know what one looks like when it is robust, sufficiently robust, to allow humans to grow within it. And those humans include the trainers and the managers, and if you're working with operators, the operators who are the focal point. Okay? A company may decide to change the steps or the exercises, and in doing this, they think they're being clever because they're making uniform or standardized the deployment protocol, but they often remove the heart from what is new, and they substitute it for what they understand because they haven't had any experience with the new. They don't know what they're missing. Hmm? They simply skip it, and they become none the wiser for it. So the point in... There is a point in every implementation when the process itself is going to be in jeopardy, when there are just too much, there's too much that's hanging in the balance, and people start feeling uneasy. And at that point, slow down. Keep going, but slow down. Be thoughtful. It is the stop that starts us. It is a well-recognized fact that understanding the what, what to do, is only half the battle in operational improvement. The other half is how. That is the combination of knowledge and know-how. So if what you have to do is crack the code and learn how to deploy locally in your own company, launching one improvement initiative will strengthen you if you do it well, and you'll be able to parlay that into your next initiative. Even if you're a newcomer, even if you have a history of almost, almost made it, almost made it, another way of saying failed, failed, but it's almost, and that's called learning. Okay? I want to do everything I can to encourage you to create change through methodology because it is the protocol that will enable you to do it again and do it again and do it deeper. Our rule is basically do it three times our way and then change it because then you'll know what can be changed without losing the heart of the methodology. It is the start that stops us, and we often don't examine why. I hope, I hope that this discussion, I'm going to go over the five factors again before uh, we close, that this discussion will just give you some pause so that you question whether or not the methodology is strong enough and whether or not you're doing it the right way and 
whether or not learning is happening even though the results haven't happened yet, the KPIs haven't shifted yet. Deployment is hard. It really is. Why is getting improvement going so tricky? Why do companies so often bail out in the early stages long before they even have had time to fail? Why is it that the start stops us? Well, that's what we're discussing. The first factor is the mistaken, in my opinion. This is just Gwendolyn's opinion, pursuit of perfection instead of progress. And then secondly, we're often too casual about choosing a methodology or it lacks a separate and robust implementation protocol. The third is the third factor that can defeat us is when, actually I said this second in our discussion today, is when managers demand results too quickly and in doing so they rob the organization of learning, of making that gradual and somewhat painful journey to change. The fourth is that our trainers begin to train groups for the wrong reasons or too quickly. They don't prepare They don't have time to prepare. They're kind of squeezed into getting something going and get everything changed by December the 31st. And the fifth is implementers decide to reshape the methodology long before they've learned it. It's the start that stops us. So as you implement whatever it is, visuality or or anything else, consider these factors and be thoughtful and be strong. And think about Chris. He wanted to know, am I doing okay? Is it supposed to feel this hard? Even though we're hitting bumps, is it going to turn out right? The first time through, you don't have confidence. The second time through, it's your second kid. You know childbirth is going to be hard, and you know the first 18 years are going to put hair on your teeth. But you're ready for it, and it's worth it. It's entirely worth it. Change happens either by design, by your design, or because it's time. Why not combine the two? I hope that this has been of some use to you. I want to thank you very, very much for tuning in and for listening. This is Visual Workplace Radio. My name is Gwendolyn Galsworth. I'm signing off. Let the workplace speak. Thank you for joining us this week at Visual Workplace Radio. Tune in for another episode next Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific, with your host, Dr. Gwendolyn Galsworth, on the Voice America Business Channel. Let the workplace speak.